This episode of Primitive Culture is brought to you by Audible.com, offering more than 180,000 titles for smartphone, tablet and desktop. To get a free audiobook of your choice and to help Trek FM at the same time, visit audibletrial.com slash trekfm. And also by Enterprise in Space, an international program of the non-profit National Space Society. Find out how you can help science and education and become a virtual crew member aboard the NSS Enterprise Orbiter by visiting enterpriseinspace.org. And if you want to join the conversation and share your thoughts on this episode, join the Babel Conference, our listeners group on Facebook. Just type B-A-B-E-L into the Facebook search field. We look forward to seeing you there. This is Tim Russ, Lieutenant Commander Tuvok on Star Trek Voyager, and you're listening to Trek FM. Open your mind to the past. Oh, this may mean something. I've been coerced into watching tonight's movie. You do have books in the 24th century. It's a primitive culture. I'm just trying to blend in. Some people think the future means the end of history. We haven't run out of history quite yet. Hello and welcome to Primitive Culture, a Trek FM podcast about our history, our culture and how Star Trek relates to it. I'm Duncan Barrett and today's episode was recorded live at the Destination Star Trek convention in Birmingham uh, in October 2019. This episode is an interview with Rick Sternbach, who, as I'm sure many of you know, was a senior illustrator on uh, pretty much all the 1990s uh, Star Trek series. He started off with an uncredited role as an illustrator on the motion picture. And when Next Generation came around, he was one of the uh, first couple of people. I think he was the second hire for the art department, along with Andrew Probert, uh, to go on and work on that series. And he's a man who really is responsible for I think much of the look of those 1990s series uh, he's responsible himself for the design of the USS Voyager uh, he worked um, very much on the design of Deep Space Nine but also many of the kind of elements, uh, the pads, the communicators, the kind of uh, day-to-day objects that we see in Star Trek that kind of define the look of Starfleet and of the vision of the future that Star Trek presents to us an awful lot of that is Rick Sternbach's work. He was also responsible for a lot of uh, making sense of the kind of science of the spaceships. Um, anyone who grew up as I did with a copy of the Next Generation Technical Manual, that was a book written by Sternbach and Mike Okuda. He was also responsible for the blueprints that they put out uh, some years later. Um, and he and Okuda, I think, were the ones who came up with concepts such as the structural integrity field, inertial dampeners, uh, and, and these kind of concepts that uh, really added a degree of realism to Star Trek's presentation of the future. So anyway, this is a short interview that was recorded uh, at the Star Trek convention in Birmingham. It's a kind of roundtable format that they set up for us. So um, as well as me, there are some other interviewers there and we kind of take it in turns to ask Rick questions. You'll hear uh, first from James Dillon from USS Riker's Beard. And you'll also be hearing from Chris Mackerel from Neil Before Pod and his colleague Craig McKenzie and Dan Mason from the Trekkie's Guide to the Galaxy. 
Galaxy. I thought this was a fascinating chat. It's not an area that I know a huge amount about the design side, but um, Rick was a fantastic interviewee and absolutely uh, a man who, as you'll be able to see, is, is passionate about his craft and about the work that he's contributed, a huge contribution he's made to the Star Trek franchise over many, many years. And I hope you enjoy listening to this as much as I enjoyed talking to him about it. I was a kid who grew up in the 50s uh, before there was anything in Earth orbit. Okay, so I, I got to see the whole, you know, evolution of the space program uh, from, the, the, from the States. And, uh, you know, watching science fiction movies and just getting inspired by all the real stuff that was happening. And watching uh, movies and television shows about space. Okay, well, that's stuck. Uh, my dad was an architect, so I got, you know, I got the, the drawing practice in early, like at the age of two and a half. Okay, with a pencil in my hand, I was drawing like little tiny race cars and things, you know. Uh, but the, the, the space stuck with me. Science fiction stuck with me. Uh, I, I became an illustrator for some of the uh, book and magazine publishers in New York. Um, went to the World SF Convention in Kansas City in 1976, okay? And in 1976, there was a little movie in production called Star Wars, and there was a display of Star Wars costumes, Ralph McQuarrie's artwork all over the walls. Mark Hamill was there in a Star Wars t-shirt. He's bouncing up and down, looking very happy. Uh, I got to meet Gary Kurtz, who was one of the producers. Uh, got to meet uh, Charlie Lippincott, who was their publicist. Uh, uh, talked to Mark Hamill for like 15 seconds, right? But it was Ralph McQuarrie's art. And I'm looking at the fires and... Every, you know, looking at all of the things that Ralph was doing for this film. The movie hadn't come out yet. Nobody knew what it was. Um, and something in the back of my head said, maybe you could work in television or, or motion pictures. And it would take maybe another year for me to move from the East Coast of the U.S. to Hollywood. Um, and making contacts along the way, like, like uh, you know, phoning up Gene Reidenberg's office <laughs> in the mid-70s uh, and getting to meet him, you know. And then once out in Los Angeles, getting to meet uh, uh, production designers on a number of uh, films and TV shows and leaving color slides, leaving little 35-millimeter color slides and uh, color prints business card, resumes, and waiting to see if, you know, something would, would happen. And it happened. And it's fair to say, isn't it, that you are largely responsible for the, for the golden age of Trek in terms of the look of Starfleet, uh, the Enterprise. It, it really was a team uh, effort. Voyager and so on, but you're the thread throughout, aren't you? Uh, I was, uh, my, you know, my official title was senior illustrator slash technical consultant. Okay, so I got to do sketches of things, but there were so many other moving parts in the art department to, to make these things happen. Um, uh, Andy Probert was there on Next Gen. 
um, on the first motion picture, on, on uh, Star Trek motion picture, uh, Mike Miner was an absolutely wonderful uh, teacher and colleague. Um, uh, you know, learning from these people, uh, just you know how this how this is done. Um, and, and they really are, you know, part of all this, this intertwined history uh, of, of, of Star Trek. Yeah, I got to draw lots and lots of designs for, for hand props and, and spaceships uh, um, and uh, working with guys like Michael Kuda on, on, you know, who really established, you know, the, the L-Cars control panel look. Mm. Um, and Mike and I were kindred spirits. We both flew model rockets. We both loved the space program. Um, and, uh, you know, if, if there are shapes of objects and ships that I was responsible for, yeah, I'm I'm sure I'll, I'll take credit for, for a lot of that. But, uh, it really was a, a massive machine. And we were all contributing to it. You inspired, yeah. um, I mean, you mentioned the space program and so on, that being a big influence. You mentioned yeah. Ralph Macquarie. Yeah. What, I'm curious, sort of what were your influences coming into when you are, uh, you know, defining the look of that era for Star Trek, uh, which obviously is quite different to the original series era in a way. Are you drawing from all these different influences or is there one thing in particular that you're kind of, it's a kind of cornerstone for that? Um... Well, I mean, you know, back when I was a kid, okay, Chesley Bonestell, who was a, a wonderful architect and painter, mm-hmm. uh, you know, he, he really defined what space art, you know, was like back in the, uh, back in the late 40s, early 50s. So, uh, you know, I, I, I attach my inspirational thread to Bonestell. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, yeah, definitely Ralph McQuarrie had an influence on things like hardware. Uh, you know, on on films like Star Wars, okay, and, and Ralph had you know connections with uh, the aerospace industry, like with Boeing, mm-hmm. um, and just looking at at all of the different artists who were doing space subjects, okay, you know, really had an effect on me, um, and uh, a lot of the science fiction artists that I got to meet and and. Uh, um, Learn from okay, Kelly Frias, Jack Gaughan, John Schoenherr, uh, the the stable of artists from Analog Magazine, who accepted you know little newbie Rick uh, as a cover artist. Okay, you know was was uh, you know very influential on me. So uh, uh, you know when it when it comes to the different shows like the motion picture or like Next Generation, I think both of those involved, you know, uh, the process of updating mm-hmm. things. Um, TNG was very much a, a huge update from the original series. Um, uh, TNG was an update from everything else that they came before. It. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, you know. How we approach like the design uh, challenges for each of those, each of the shows that I worked on, um, you know, involved okay, looking at okay, what are the set designers doing? Uh, what do the costumes look like? 
what what I, I keep going back to these these words like stylistic cues. Mm-hmm. Okay, what things are the other departments doing that I can adapt? Uh, and sometimes it, 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 it was it was very much, uh, especially with maybe some of the alien things on some of these shows, uh, an alien's costume or the alien set design could influence just how I drew the exterior of the ship. And the Borg, presumably, must have been a big one. You were talking about things that related to previous stuff. That Borg cube was unlike anything we'd ever seen. Except the Borg cube was a very simplistic basic shape. Yeah. Okay. The detail was really done by the visual effects model builders. Right. Okay. I did a few very, very, you know, rough color, uh, uh, black and white or grayscale paintings of some of the, the pipe detailing on the outside. But that was, that was nothing. Okay. That was really, you know, the, the, uh, the model builders who really took that and ran with it. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, when I mention things like like um, um, costumes and set design, okay, look at the Herosion from Voyager. Okay, we had some interesting shapes in the Herosion bridge, like these giant uh, uh, stretched out pyramids, okay, that were in the set. And some other shapes like, you know, we had some uh, rental gear, like these huge... Uh, uh, liquid containers that had some very interesting ribbing to them. So I'm looking at these shapes and I said, that's got to go on the outside of the hunter ship. Okay, so those things spark ideas and they work. And they work. Um, um, things like the, uh, look at the makeup on the Cardassians. Okay, the neck. Okay, of uh, inspired some of the look of the outside of Deep Space Nine. Mm-hmm. where you have the pylons and they flare out. It's like you don't want to beat people over the head with these features, but you want to subtly suggest to them, you know, hey, I'm seeing this sh- sort of shape, yeah. um, you know, again and again. Okay, and, and, and mentally, you know, you want to hook a lot of these, these stylistic things together. Uh, so that each week you know what a Cardassian ship could look like. Yeah. That kind of thing. Yeah. Now, you've talked about uh, a lot of things that have inspired you and your designs. How does it feel to have inspired so many products that we see today? Like So many designers <laughs> have watched things like Star Trek and went, flip phones and tablets and, and gizmos like that, where they look at Star Trek and then, yeah, I, uh, it's 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 fun to have. It, it was fun to have watched. Uh, let's say the you know the electronics revolution. Okay, I can't claim to have invented the look of the iPod. Okay, but to me, it's a convergence of a lot of style ideas that were going on in the electronics business. Um, you know. Um, the, you know, you mentioned the flip phone, okay? And yes, an engineer at Motorola did look at, you know, the original communicator, okay? And, and got a little idea off of that. Um, uh, I don't know if any of the, you know, specific props that I worked on 
sparked somebody at at an electronics company or at you know a, a home improvement products company or anything like that. Um, uh, you know, if if it helped, yeah, terrific. <laughs> you know, I'm, uh, that's that, that's that's fine. Um, a lot of styles, um, you know, kind of come into their own, and even I get affected by things that I'm seeing, products that are being developed. Uh, you know, you look at you look at the, the some of the the personal computer things that were happening um, back in the early '80s. Okay. Well, you wouldn't design like that these days. You know, okay, look at the Commodore Pet, okay, or, you know, the boxy things with the, the membrane keyboards and stuff like that. Um, no, things have changed, okay, so we try to adapt um, uh, or even try to, to go further. Um, yeah, well, I mean, will they, will they spark the next um, advance in, in, Product design, I don't, I don't know. Um, you know, people ask me, well, hey, if you were going to design uh, a tricorder today, how would you do it? I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. I've got something like that in my pocket. <laughs> you know, how do you make it better than what we have? Okay. Um, so that would be a toughie. That would be a toughie. I, I would... Uh, uh, I mean, I was thinking about maybe starting uh, on a little bit smaller challenge, like trying to design a new pad, a new Trek pad. Okay, what would that look like? I don't want it to look like a glass slab. All right, we have that. How do you make something more capable um, than what we're already carrying? Okay, so we've, I think we've sort of hit a brick wall with some of this design. Um, yes, you could, you know, like in, in Star Trek history, yes, you can go backwards and make things that kind of fit in the, let's say, the Star Trek Enterprise era. Okay, that's not as hard as, let's say, post-Voyager. Or, you know, I, I'd be interested to see how they're going to handle things in the Picard series. Okay, do you make things more complicated looking, but still cool? Um, I, I, I think it's going to be a big challenge no matter what the franchise is. You know, if you're talking about from this point into the future, you know, this, this, this is not easy stuff. <laughs> <laughs> So you mentioned about the, what kind of prompted you to design the exterior of the alien ships, uh, but be interested to hear about the, the Starfleet ships because you know there was a particular philosophy as to how to design them with the the two nacelles or you know or at least uh, multiples of two nacelles, the dish and the uh, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. the saucer. So yeah. how is it you would um, kind of play around with that to make something that looks different from anything else? Well, in terms of the ship exteriors. Um I don't. I don't subscribe to the the notion of, of just an even number of, of nacelles. Um, you know, Gene Roddenberry suggested that while he was still with us. Um, you know, I, I think I think just to keep within a a Starfleet look. Um, you know, we've stuck with with two nacelles. Uh, the all good things 
you know, enterprise, of course, had a third nacelle. And when that happened, I started to make little sketches of, okay, well, well, let's see, the warp field lines could go in a certain way. Oh, that, that should work. <laughs> so, I mean, along the way, I didn't see any reason why an odd number of nacelles couldn't work. All right, if you dig deep into the, the fictional operation of, of warp fields on a starship, okay, I mean, this could get very technical and very boring very quickly. <laughs> um, but you had really thought yeah. about that, I guess, because you and Mike Akuda wrote that technical manual. I mean, I remember as a kid, oh, yeah, yeah. going over that, and it, okay. it was the thing that made me feel, I didn't understand any of it, but it made me yeah. feel like Star Trek was real somehow. Well, go, back and, real. go back and read it I, I again. Will, yeah. But the other thing I remember is, which <laughs> fans debate endlessly to this day, Cetacean Ops. I'm curious whether, yeah. when you put Cetacean Ops in, yeah. was that just an Easter egg? Was it just a joke? Because some fans yeah. take it totally earnestly and think, no, there is absolutely, that is there. We just never see it on the Enterprise team. I, I, Others maybe think, okay, we'll forget about I, I, could, I could talk to you for an, an hour <laughs> on cetaceans aboard the Enterprise. Mm -hmm. okay. mm -hmm. um, in the early 70s, I, uh, I hooked up with a number of people at uh, different uh, oceanic parks, okay, where they had uh, on display things like bottlenose dolphins, beluga whales, um, uh, orcas, uh, things like that. I'm not a huge fan of keeping them in, in captivity. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, when I learned about cetaceans uh, when I was a, like a bio major in school for a year, um, I was fascinated by them, okay, and learned about their anatomy, learned about their, uh, their social life. Uh, uh, you know, I went on a, uh, a short expedition with the New York Aquarium personnel, um, to uh, Canada to look at belugas in the wild, things like that. So I, I got in there, you know, helping, helping uh, as, a, as a, a sort of a, you know, a newbie uh, and, uh, and, and loved every minute of it. Okay. Now, when it came time to do um, the, the enterprise, let's say, you know, the deck plans and fleshing out some ideas for the producers and all this. Um, I thought, I thought, why not bring some evolved or trained cetaceans on board the ship? They are much better at 3D movement than we are. Okay. Uh, I've done paintings of dolphins in spacesuits. <laughs> okay, um, with the proper connection to the RCS thrusters and that sort of thing, I think Dolphin would be terrific in zero gravity. Mm -hmm. Okay, um, and uh, you know, cetacean ops, we we put that into the tech info. If the producers wanted to work with it, mm -hmm. terrific. If they if they liked it, fine. In yesterday's enterprise. Okay, uh, the producers asked us for some uh, public affairs messages that would come over the loudspeaker, right? And one of them was, Dr. Joshua Kim, please report to Cetacean Ops. Well, Joshua is my son. Right. So, I put him in there. And, but Cetacean Ops suddenly became audio canon. Okay, <laughs> <laughs> this is right now. Yeah. Terrific. Okay, so uh, maybe in an alternate universe, there, there was Cetacean Ops. But then there was another episode where Jordy is, is talking to some diplomat, 
um, and saying, um, you know, have you seen the dolphins? <laughs> okay, great. So in the, in the normal TNG universe, yes, there were dolphins somewhere aboard the Enterprise. Okay. <laughs> um, what happened when it crashed? <laughs> well, okay, well, when it crashed, um, first of all, I'm, I'm a little ticked off that nobody used the escape pods. Right, yeah. <laughs> okay, but the cetaceans have their own specialized escape pods that are okay. wet pods. Mm -hmm. Okay, they could have they could have launched themselves perfectly well, easily, mm -hmm. but even even with the saucer crashing, you still had the structural integrity field. The bottom of the hull was probably just just cinched up tight, mm -hmm. and I'm sure they survived. Okay, because you had you know you had all of these Starfleet assets coming to the crash site later. No reason you couldn't have a couple of specialized. You know, shuttles uh, pulling those whales and dolphins, you know, back to safety. Okay. Uh, oh, that's a relief. <laughs> yeah. I, well, we didn't see it happen, but, you know, uh, to me, Trek is a sandbox that we can all play in and say whatever we want. <laughs> yeah. So, the uh, question I'd like to ask you is as, as Trek has influenced so many other sci-fi shows and people have taken bits right. Do you watch other sci-fi shows with a critical eye? Do you watch it with a, an eye of, I recognize this as an inf uh, taking some influence myself or, or, or do, you, do you look at it with some fresh eyes? You know, uh, we were just yeah. outside about how certain parts of the new Lost in Space show, you, you can see yeah. parts of the Enterprise now. If you look well, I'm, I'm, I'm sure shows like that, you know, have been influenced by us and by Star Wars and by, you know, Galactica and, and, and you name it. Okay. Um, now, with Star Trek in particular, and I had a, I had a very short conversation with Richard Dean Anderson uh, at a con about Stargate. All right. The Stargate writers, I am thoroughly convinced that they got structural integrity field from us. Okay. Which is fine. It, it's like, a, to me, it's like a tip of the hat. Okay. So in, in the Stargate franchise, you know, 10 years of SG-1 and I don't know how many years of, of Atlantis and Universe. Um, yeah, I, I can see where things that we invented specifically for Trek, okay, ended up in somebody else's show. Okay. I don't mind that. I think that's, I think it's incredible fun. Okay. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I, I try to keep an eye on other shows that are out there. I have to catch up with Discovery. Um, yeah, I may have to spend a few bucks to watch Picard. <laughs> okay. Things like that. Um, uh, I'm a big fan of The Expanse. I'm a huge fan of The Expanse. Uh, because they they are taking a lot of uh, real space subjects um, and working with them very smartly. You know, okay, forget the fact that the Epstein drive is totally not possible. Okay, using normal physics. Okay, using what we know about about the most high energy fuels and power supplies. Doesn't matter. Doesn't matter. They are, you know, they, just like, just like we tried to do on the various truck shows, they are internally consistent. Okay. They make it fun. The effects are great. I think the ships are fantastic. 
Um, and I can't wait for season four. A lot of the space-based SF out there um, is, is, you know, there's so much of it now and it's a lot of fun to watch. Uh, yeah, some shows I'm not a huge fan of. Uh, Lost in Space, I, I don't think I'm their audience. Okay, so, you know, I will, I will go through a list of shows that, yes, I will watch them. I'll watch them for, uh, let's say, uh, VFX design and things like that. Um, a lot of uh, a lot of console video games, boy, the, the effort that they put into a lot of these things, you know, dwarfs what a, a typical TV show can do. Okay, so I'm watching a lot of things that are going into console game design. Um, and, you know, uh, we, we're all looking at each other's works, you know, and I think I, it's a great time to have a TV. <laughs> Previously on Trek.fm, Literary Treks. I knew from the beginning it was going to be a very large and complicated undertaking. I was asked by the editor and the licensor to come up with a storyline for Picard that would deal with the fallout of what I unleashed in my novel Section 31 Control, in which Section 31's crimes, and in fact its very existence, are publicly exposed to the Federation at large as well as its interstellar neighbors. Earl Grey. Troy looks down at her empty stomach. <laughs> <laughs> do this part i'm gonna act it okay troy looks down at her empty stomach and frowns telepathically <laughs> oh i wish listeners you couldn't see it but i did that <laughs> oh, okay laforge <laughs> computer locate a big thing of chips <laughs> to the journey what about the basics planet that planet's not bad there's a lot of wide open spaces you just have to avoid going in the caves yeah I mean, anthropologically speaking. No spelunking on that planet. You can spelunk on the <laughs> Unicomplex, but you can't spelunk on that planet. No. The Edge, a Star Trek Discovery podcast. That he said... <laughs> he was taking he, the new body out for a ride? Yeah, that was great. <laughs> I mean, it was a great line. It just doesn't really fit what really happened. Like... He wasn't out there dating other people. You know, like, well, he was trying to figure out who this new Colbert was, you know. No, I know. But it, I, it was I like funny. It was lighthearted. It, right. It just didn't. It just doesn't fit what he actually did. And that's what else is happening on Trek.fm. Check out all these shows and join the conversation about your favorite corner of the Star Trek universe and beyond. You'll find us wherever you get your podcasts. If you're an Apple user... Be sure to hit the subscribe button in Apple Podcasts on iPhone, iPad or Apple TV or the desktop iTunes app to get the latest episodes as soon as they're published. And please leave us a star rating and a written review. If you're not an Apple user, we've got you covered as well. You can find our shows on Google Play Music, Stitcher, TuneIn, Spreaker, SoundCloud, Windows Phone, in most third-party apps, and you can stream and download the MP3 file from our website or grab the RSS link. We'd love to hear your thoughts on today's show, and there are many ways for you to do that. The best place to join in the larger conversation is the Babel Conference, our listeners' group on Facebook. Just type Babel, B-A-B-E-L, into the search field on Facebook, and it should come right up. If you'd like to send us an email, you can use the form on our website at trek.fm slash contact. Choose to send to a show and select Primitive Culture, and that will come right to us. 
You can also find the network on Twitter at TrekFM and on Facebook at facebook.com slash TrekFM. If you'd like to help us keep all our shows coming to you each week, you can become a patron of the network on Patreon. Visit patreon.com slash TrekFM, that's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash TrekFM, to get all the details. Perks include early access to episodes, exclusive content, producer credits, and more, available through our special patrons' website, Patron Zone. It requires a great deal of money to produce, host, and distribute these shows each month, so we really appreciate any support you can give us, and we hope you'll join the team. Again, you can find all our details at patreon.com slash trekfm. We'd like to take a moment now to thank our associate producers on Primitive Culture, Amy Nelson, Clara Cook, and Tony Black. Amy is a presenter of many other shows on the network, and you can find her on Twitter at at Miss Amy Nelson. Clara and Tony were two of the former co-hosts of this show, and they'll be popping back from time to time. You can find Clara on Twitter at at Clara Jean MC, and Tony at at AJ Black Writer. You're blended already.